Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, and then verses 36 through 43. If you're able, would you stand please for the reading of God's word? Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the the weeds appeared as well. And the servants of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then skipping ahead to verse 36. Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples approached him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. This is the word of God. And you can grab your seat. From this passage, I'll preach from the title, Kept in the Chaos. Kept in the Chaos. Earlier this week, I read an article which described how an institution which I know and respect and have uh, supported had acted hypocritically toward one of its employees. Every time for the rest of the week when I thought about that article, I found myself getting angry. I was angry in part because I hate watching people get run over by powerful institutions. The other reason I felt angry was because as as much as I hadn't expected to find this institution that I care about in the news, it also felt sort of predictable. The parade of corrupt leaders and self-serving institutions can seem endless these days. In this section of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is telling one parable after another. Parables are stories whose, whose meaning is meant to be considered carefully and slowly uncovered. That's why Jesus, or that's why Matthew writes that Jesus put before them another parable. It's it's like he's saying that Jesus put before them a delicious meal for them to savor. Oftentimes, parables were a way for Jesus to address a complicated question with nuance and imagination. Now, the question which prompted this parable about the wheat and the weeds seemed to be something like, How can the kingdom of heaven 
be among us when there is still so much wrong with the world? This is the sort of question I was muttering to myself after reading that article this week. And to this question, a question which each of us probably ask regularly in our own deeply personal ways, Jesus puts before the crowd a parable. A parable in which he taught that the kingdom of heaven would prevail despite opposition because of God's coming judgment. Our world is far more complicated than most of us would prefer it to be. People we have looked up to let us down. Institutions and organizations which we have trusted let slip their selfish agendas. Honestly... Our own desires and wills are not exempt from these tendencies, are they? The long and sinful human story infects our choices, as do the more particular and specific stories of our far-from-perfect families and communities. Like the crowds surrounding him, many of us want Jesus to cut through the moral complexities and the messy complications of the sinful world and of our own hearts. Make it plain, Jesus. Go ahead and rip out the weeds, Jesus. But Jesus' parabolic response offers a different possibility entirely. Rather than ripping out the worldly weeds of wickedness and sin or snatching us from this disordered, and unruly world. Jesus calls us to love the world. And so from whatever complicated place you stand today, whatever longing for resolution and justice you've brought with you today, whatever struggle between selfishness and generosity that tugs at your heart today, here's what I would like each of us to see this morning. God's righteous kingdom frees us to love this chaotic world. God's righteous kingdom frees us to love this chaotic world. And we ought to be clear that that our world is no more chaotic or complicated than was the world of that crowd surrounding Jesus on that day. Most of these women and men were Jewish people who had experienced foreign occupation for generation after generation after generation. They were now ruled by puppet kings who were allied with the empire. Even their religious leaders couldn't agree on the best way to lead them spiritually or engage politically for their good. Many of these women and men had found that they had to assimilate to the empire simply to survive. Their lives were just as complicated, experienced just as much chaos as do ours. And out of that experience developed a hopeful expectation that God would send his anointed one, the Messiah, to straighten everything out, to restore the temple, to repel Rome, and to retrieve the exiles who had been driven away from their homeland. The people around Jesus were expecting a day when God would make very clear the division between good and evil. Part of this expectation came as they read the Old Testament book of Daniel from the Hebrew scriptures. 
And in this prophetic book, the, the people found that God would one day establish his kingdom. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, we read that, that judgment was given for the holy ones of the Most High. And the time arrived when the holy ones gained possession of the kingdom. The people longed for that day when God's kingdom would come visibly, dividing good and evil forever. And in that same book of Daniel, they read that the, this kingdom would be established by one known as the Son of Man. Let me read two verses from Daniel for you to, to help fill in this expectation that the crowd would have had for Jesus. In verses 13 and 14 of Daniel chapter 7. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one as a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You could say that the crowd around Jesus had very high expectations for the Messiah. Their hearts were hopeful for the day when the anointed one would come and bring God's kingdom dividing good from evil. We, we, we know something about high expectations. If there's ever a politician who, who promises something that, that you really want, you're more likely to go to the polls and vote for that person. If it's an electoral cycle when you're kind of uh, a little apathetic about what the politicians are talking about, you're less likely to go to the polls. Imagine your highest expectations... For any politician or elected official and then multiply it by a thousand. This was the hopeful expectation that the crowd around Jesus had for the Messiah, for the Son of Man. Because when this one came, he would enact God's judgment and defeat evil. And the thing is, Jesus is talking an awful lot like this Son of Man. He's acting an awful lot like this Messiah. In fact, he identifies himself as the Son of Man. So people begin to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of Man. A couple of chapters later in Matthew's Gospel, one of Jesus' followers, Peter, will confess, You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. And that confession came with all of those expectations. The problem here is that there's some cognitive dissonance in the air. Because though Jesus was talking and in a way acting like the Son of Man, like the Messiah, the temple was still corrupted. Rome was still in power. And the exiles hadn't come home. And so the people were left wondering, where is God's judgment? Now Jesus is going to respond to this question with, this parable about the weeds and the wheat. But I want to pause for a moment because you and I ask very similar questions of Jesus, don't we? If God is good, why does bad stuff happen? 
if Jesus' death and resurrection actually defeated sin, death, and the devil, why is there still so much suffering? If the kingdom of heaven has actually come near as Jesus has claimed it has, then why does injustice seem to win so regularly? Why, Jesus? That's the question that we share with that crowd from 2,000 years ago, if we're honest. Maybe some of you have never asked that question, but I would imagine that most of us probably regularly have. Why? Something deep in us longs for the righteousness and the justice prophesied by Daniel so many years ago. We want wickedness and wrong to be pulled from the shadows and defeated forever. We want the good, the true, and the beautiful to be honored. We want an obvious dividing line between sin and redemption. Well, except when we don't. Except when we are self-aware enough to realize That the dividing line between right and wrong, good and bad, sinner and saint, doesn't just run through the world, but through our own hearts as well. Though, even then, in those moments of honesty, we still might find ourselves asking why. Though our desires too often bend away from God's righteousness, in our clearest moments, we want to want the good, the true, And the beautiful. That is, we want to want what God created us for. It's just that the forces of sin and evil seem to overwhelm our best attempts. I wonder this morning if if the starting point for some of us is a simple confession. That we are unable to control the chaos of our worlds. That we are unable to control the chaos in our own communities, in our own family. That we are frankly unable to control the chaos in our own lives. How much stress, stress that you walked in with this morning, is caused by the belief that if you just worked a little harder, if you just organized your life a little bit more strategically... If you just managed your to-do list a little bit more efficiently, then you could make sense of this world. Then you could make sense of your community. Then you could make sense of your own life. Maybe we begin this morning with a simple confession that we are unable to control the chaos in this world. No matter how great or how close. We want God to act decisively and obviously as did that crowd around Jesus on that day. And this desire for God to act decisively can lead us to wishing that God would just clean everything up for us. That God would obviously and finally pull from the chaos of our world something true and something good and something permanent. For the crowd, they were looking for that restored temple, a defeated empire, and the exilic return. They would know that God's kingdom of righteousness had come when those things happened. 
But Jesus is doing something different, and it has confused everybody. The past two Sundays, uh, Valerie and Juan have really uh, carefully and thoughtfully shown how emotionally healthy spirituality nourishes healthy relationships with ourselves as well as with the communities to which we belong. This is the stuff we're going to be digging into as a church in Wednesday night Bible study uh, for the next few months. And and I fully expect that God will do a healing work in our lives as we lean into this invitation of emotional and spiritual health. But what about when we zoom out just a little bit? Because you see, Jesus' parables reveal... That we follow Jesus not just into the intimacy of our own hearts or the nearness of our own families and communities. That that we follow Jesus into this wide and chaotic world. We follow Jesus into this world called to show and to tell of his saving love. And the more that we are vulnerable and tender to this world, the more complicated things become. Our Feudal instinct to divide life into good and bad, potentially redeemable and utterly lost, becomes more pronounced as we move tenderly into the world. As we become more emotionally healthy, are we, we are able to see our, ourselves and our loved ones with more loving nuance. Well, I believe the same is to be true about how we see and love the world. I'm I'm assuming that most of us have noticed how children see the world in pretty binary terms. Black and white. A thing is this or a thing is that. Um, Maybe you've had the experience of watching a movie with a child. Reading a story with a child. And, And one of the questions that they may ask is, is that a good guy or a bad guy? And sometimes the answer is really obvious. And sometimes if you're reading the story or watching the movie, it can be a hard question to answer. I recently uh, read a book to our two sons. Maybe you've heard of this. Everything sad is untrue. And this is a story without giving it away because it's a beautiful book and I would recommend it to you about a a, a young boy from Iran who with his mother and sister has to flee the country. And throughout the book, different characters appear to be good and you think, well, this is who we're rooting for. And then things get kind of complicated. And and another character, you think, well, they are clearly the bad guy. And And then things get a little bit more complicated. When the servants discover the weeds sown by the enemy into the master's wheat field, their instinct is to rip them out. Now, these weeds were probably a species called darnel, which initially, when it comes out of the ground, looks an awful lot like wheat, which means that for the first few weeks, it's hard to tell the difference between the two. And during those weeks, the roots of the weed intertwine themselves with the roots of the wheat. Which means that if you tear out the weeds, you're going to rip out the wheat as well. 
Now, these servants likely were very aware of this. This was actually a common practice. There was laws on the book in the Roman Empire that forbade this practice. That's how common it was. And, and so these servants, they would have understood that to rip out the weeds would be to do damage to the wheat as well. And yet, like us, they want that visible line between the wheat and the weeds. They want that visible division between good and evil. And I want to say this very directly. That desire is a characteristic of emotional immaturity. Nobody said amen to that one, Michael. Nobody, nobody, nobody said amen. I'm, just gonna, I'm a little bit uphill work to do here this morning. It's, it's all right. It's all right. I, I, it's been a while since I've been in the, in the pulpit. So it's okay. It's okay. That way of seeing the world in binaries is totally appropriate for a child. It's this or that, good guy, bad guy. That's how a child makes their way through the world. It's not appropriate for an adult. Because life is far more complicated than that. You yourself are not a good guy or a bad guy. Life is more complicated. The servants understood that the weeds were wrapped around the wheat. And maturity requires that we understand that the sin and wickedness in the world has infected us too. And yet despite this knowledge, we still tend toward that simplistic response to evil. Just rip it all out, Jesus. Five months after the attacks on 9-11, then-President Bush stood before Congress uh, at the uh, State of the Union address. And during that address, he identified Iraq, Iran, and North Korea as an axis of evil. By identifying entire countries, entire peoples as evil, as opposed to the righteousness of the American cause... The president could justify a rip-them-all-out policy toward our nation's enemies. The violence of that response, a violence which cannot help but impact us as well, is an attribute of emotional immaturity. Evidence that we've got some growing up to do. This world is chaotic. The lines between evil countries and good countries are not so easily drawn. And frankly, the same is true of our own hearts as well. Who belongs to your axis of evil? Who do you judge without nuance? Who lives under the gaze of your assumptions in a way that removes aspects of their humanity. It may have to do with ideology or politics or region, culture. I think it's pretty important to notice that, that Jesus does not disregard the question about how God's kingdom can coexist with evil and suffering. Jesus doesn't say, ah, it's actually not that bad. Jesus doesn't say, ah, come on, just get it together, follow me, trust me, have faith, and it's going to be okay. In fact, this is one of the few parables where Jesus takes the time to explain it. He usually doesn't do that. 
And in his explanation in verses 36 through 43, Jesus shows that the weeds are real. That there is an enemy who animates evil and suffering in this world, who takes advantage of our tendency towards sin. So, if Jesus acknowledges the coexistence of evil alongside God's kingdom, but if Jesus also refuses our instinct to violently remove the weeds, well then what is his response? We need to remember that this entire parable is about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the the realm where God's will is perfectly expressed, unopposed. When we talk about heaven, we're talking about that realm where nothing opposes God's good and pleasing and perfect will. So Jesus teaches us to pray that his will would be done where? On, as it is in. And Jesus promises us that in him, that, that realm of God's perfect will has broken into our earth. And through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, you and I are able to align our small personal kingdoms, our wills, with the kingdom of heaven that is breaking into this earth. So in this parable, Jesus acknowledges that the kingdom of heaven presently exists in the midst of this world's chaos. It coexists with this world's chaos. So to be even more accurate from this parable... The roots of the kingdom of heaven are intertwined with the roots of this chaotic world. I don't like that. I would prefer a much clearer line of demarcation and division. But that's not the parable that Jesus tells. So Jesus tells the crowd that the kingdom of heaven exists within the world as it actually is, broken and groaning. And then he directs the crowd's attention towards the future. To the question of how evil can coexist with God's good kingdom, Jesus points to God's final judgment. In this future, the enemy is defeated once and for all. Those who've advanced his wicked ends are judged. And Jesus says that the righteous will shine like sun. In other words, a day is coming when evil cannot withstand the presence of God's righteous kingdom. That's good news. That's hopeful news. That's an anchor. And for now, you and I live In this chaotic and occasionally destructive world. This is where we make our home. It is an understandable but an emotionally immature response to this chaos. To try to control it. To impose our order over it. To sit in judgment over that chaos. If we're honest, because I know us pretty well, some of us were attracted to our particular work because we wanted to be the ones who fixed that system. We wanted to be the ones who helped that community or changed that organization. Now, some of us have realized that 
that we weren't quite up to that task. So we've limited our scope a little bit to fixing our families or rescuing that friend or helping our spouse get better. And still others of us, realizing that we are not even capable of that, have limited our scope even further. We have zeroed in on ourselves, making ourselves our salvation project. Choosing which part of ourselves are bad and irredeemable and trying to cultivate the parts of ourselves that we like. The result of this sort of emotionally immature posture to the world is that we are either drawing boundaries that are so tall and so tight that anyone who doesn't measure up to our self-determined exacting standards of goodness cannot get in or we exhaust ourselves and we assimilate to this world's demands. And I can imagine Jesus observing our frenetic projects to control and to fix and to save. I imagine Jesus watching us wear down under the stresses of our own self-righteousness. And I hear him saying, nope, that's not it. A different response is possible according to this parable. A mature response Rooted in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says a day of judgment is coming. When God's kingdom of righteousness and peace drives out evil for all time. That day has not come yet. And so if God has withheld his final judgment, then so will we. And if God's good judgment is coming, then the way of worldly assimilation is not available to us either. Instead, what we see in this parable is that we are held fast. We are kept secure by God's kingdom in this world's chaos. The Messiah's life, death, and resurrection points us to a day when wrong will be made right. When death will die. When the irredeemable is redeemed. When evil succumbs to good. And when sin sinks beneath the waters of forgiveness for the last time. And it's this promise of ultimate justice which frees us from our emotional immaturity. Frees us from our need to judge. Frees us from our desire for dividing walls. Frees us from succumbing to assimilation. This promise frees us from our emotionally immature need to slice and dice, to segregate and separate, to reduce complexities to simplistic binaries. This promise frees us to love, to love, to love this chaotic and complicated world. Which, what, is, what is one way right now that you are especially experiencing the chaos of our world. Where do you find your roots intertwined with the weeds? 
we, we may not prefer to think about this sort of question. Acknowledging our place amidst sin and suffering, complexities and chaos is a, a good way to provoke some anxiety. We can be tempted to revert to those immature responses of imposing order, of deputizing ourselves to rip out the weeds. But as you, as you consider your place in this world's chaos, what changes when the promise of God's righteous kingdom looms large in your prayerful imagination? The kingdom of heaven to which you and I belong will be brought to fulfillment one day by the one who will be worshipped, as Daniel says, by all the nations and peoples of every language, whose dominion will not pass away and whose kingdom will never be destroyed. He is the one who keeps you in the chaos. And so you don't have to be afraid to acknowledge your place in this chaotic world. Because right now you are being held and kept by our Savior King. The struggle will end one day, but his kingdom will not. Sin and suffering are temporary, but the kingdom of heaven is eternal. As the psalmist reminds us, weeping may endure for a night. Somebody finish it for me. But joy cometh in the morning. God's righteous kingdom frees us to love this chaotic world. It is more than understandable why some of us would prefer Jesus to just snatch us out of this world. Or at least to, to yank out the weeds which seem to have choked life around us. This world can be hard, can be more than hard. And some of us in this room this morning have known the layers of its cruelty. So I think it's important to acknowledge that Jesus' parable is more than a story to motivate us. It is more than a way to explain away the world's complexities. If the weeds in Jesus' parable symbolizes those who've corroborated with sin and evil, then at least in part, you and I are those weeds. We are the sinned against, it's true. We are the ones who've suffered under this world's evil. But the emotionally and spiritually mature person will also confess that we have sinned against. That at times our words and our actions, things done and left undone, have inflicted suffering on those around us. Which means that no matter how much we might have wanted the master to clear this world's weeds, we too are the beneficiaries of his patience. You see, rather than clearing the world of each source of sorrow and suffering, the Son of Man entered into our world. To our questions about how God's kingdom can coexist with such brokenness, Jesus offers his body as the answer.
His presence with you in your grief, in your shame, in your anger, is the promise of hopeful vindication. The holy God, who is perfect in every way, refuses to discard you, refuses to rip you out, refuses to tire of you, refuses to accept your life or my life as collateral damage in the battle against evil. Instead of pulling us from this world, in Christ, God entered this world embodied and vulnerable. The chaos unleashed by our sin and the enemy's deceit accumulated around the tender and vulnerable and human Jesus, unleashing its violence onto his body. And when Jesus finally succumbed to death, he took sin with him. He took evil with him. He took the devil with him to the grave. And when he got up three days later, he secured his kingdom of shalom and salvation, of righteousness and justice, of redemption and reconciliation forever. Do you find yourself in the chaos today? If you're awake, you do. Do you find yourself in the chaos today? Look to Jesus. He is both the promise and the guarantee of your survival. Look to Jesus. He is the promise and the guarantee of our world's redemption. Look to Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our salvation. I wonder if any of us here this morning can testify that we have been kept by Jesus in the chaos. I wonder if any of us have stories about how Jesus has held us fast in the chaos. I'm not asking a rhetorical question. I'm asking, has anybody here been kept by Jesus in the chaos? Talk back to me for just a minute. Has anybody found joy when there should have only been despair? Has anybody found hope when there only should have been shame? Has anybody found a home when they ought to have been literally homeless? Has anybody found themselves... I'm trying to preach the gospel to a couple of you this morning. Has anybody found themselves in their right mind when you know what the enemy has been lying to you for years? Has anybody been kept, held, protected, anchored in the chaos... By the anointed one who didn't stand a long ways away. Who didn't stand a long ways away and throw you a life raft hoping that you would catch it. Who didn't look at you and say, well, that was one too many times. You went there one too many times. So I'm done with you now. Has anybody found themselves in the presence of the son of God who was there at the beginning? who called nothingness into existence, and then who made himself vulnerable to you so that in your sin, in your brokenness, in the chaos that you've experienced and which you have unleashed, he is still near to you. Have you been kept? Do you need to be kept? How many of us this morning, we know that if Jesus doesn't keep me, 
I'm going to go under for the last time. If, if Jesus doesn't hold me up, then I'm done. I cannot keep walking this narrow way of faithfulness and discipleship if Jesus isn't the one leading me day after day. How many of you know viscerally in your bodies that you need Jesus to keep you in the chaos and the confusion and the complexities of this world? Because here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just sustain us in the chaos. Jesus has thriving for us in the chaos. He has flourishing for us in the chaos. Jesus has growing and maturing for us in the chaos. Do not believe the devil's lie that you have to escape the chaos in order to be okay. Because Jesus has entered the chaos with you. You will be more than okay. This is what Jesus' kingdom frees us for. No longer do we have to control this world. No longer do we have to assimilate it. Through Jesus and his kingdom of righteousness, you and I have been freed to love this world. Somebody say amen. Amen. Here's my compulsion this morning. I want to open up the space for us to pray. For us to respond to the presence of Jesus in our chaos right now. As I listen and talk to different ones of us, I hear story after story after story of the chaos in our own hearts, in our lives, in our communities, in our families, in this world. And it it feels overwhelming to many of us today. And so we're going to open up the space. Worship team, can you all come on back up? We're going to open up the space today for you to be prayed for. So where's the prayer team this morning? Jasmine, you come on up. Ryan, so, so, so Jasmine's going to be up here on your right. Ryan's going to be up here on your left, but I'm going to need some extra help. So, uh, Dad, Pastor Kevin, if you can come uh, stand up here as well. Pete, are you available? If, uh, Pete's going to come stand up here. But my expectation is a lot of us are going to get prayed for. Mia's going to uh, stand up here uh, in, in the back. And then, uh, Richard, if I can ask you, Richard will stand. So we got six prayer team members who are ready to, to pray over you that you would know that Jesus is with you in, in whatever, whatever the thing is right now. And, I, and I'm like hyper aware that for some of us, the, the simple act of getting out of our chair and walking to one of these folks is a massive act of faith. Because we feel so overwhelmed, so turned around, so confused by this chaos. We don't even know how to vocalize what we need Jesus to do for us. So, so can I encourage some of us who are in that place to literally just with your body, you walk over to one of these folks, they're going to say, what well, can I pray for you? And you shrug your shoulders. That's enough. And they're going to pray the gospel of Jesus Christ over you. They're going to pray that the Holy Spirit makes the presence of Jesus palpable in your life today. Do you hear the invitation, church? Spirit of the living God, we bless you. We bless you. We bless you for keeping us. We're in this room today. We're in our right minds today. We're able to praise you today because you have kept us. You've protected us. Your gospel has been a foundation for us. The grace of Jesus has been the air in our lungs. And, and, and we know that until you return and make all things well, we're going to live in this complicated and chaotic world. 
and, and, and not simply to survive it, not simply to, 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 to huddle in, not simply to build boundaries and barriers to protect ourselves, but to, to actively and vulnerably love this world that you love so much. And so we need you to keep us, to keep us, to fill us, to protect us, to heal us, to save us, to restore us, to do whatever it is that you need to do. We don't want to just survive. We we don't want to just barely get by. We want the promise of the abundant and the blessed life to be one that we can testify to. Today, not someday, but today. So we give you this moment. We give you this space. Spirit of living God, move, 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 move. Speak, act, uh, 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 act, act, say whatever you want to say, Lord Jesus. Do whatever you want to do. We give you this space. It's yours. In your name we pray. Amen. So listen, um, I'm going to come back in a few minutes to kind of give us a benediction and to send us out.